Welcome back to Public Health Law Watch COVID Law Briefing. I'm Scott Burris from Temple Law School. Uh, the COVID Law Briefing is sponsored by the Public Health Law Watch, an initiative of the George Consortium. You can find out more about um, all these organizations and get all the background materials uh, and access to recordings for these uh, briefings at publichealthlawwatch.org. For part two of today's briefing, we are going to turn from prisons to the topic of um, states uh, taking control of or otherwise exercising authority over what can happen in hospitals. So we had a story in Philadelphia this week where uh, the city was uh, ultimately fruitlessly negotiating with the owner of a defunct hospital to get control of it. And the deal fell apart on the millions of dollars of rent that the owner wanted. But it raised the question of why couldn't the state just go in and take that building emergency powers, which turns out to raise all sorts of other and related questions about um, things like whether or not is it is a regulatory taking to tell a hospital that they can't duck uh, elective medical procedures in order to save uh, masks and other gear and space for COVID. So in order to help us work through these big legal issues, um, I'm happy to welcome Vicki Williams, who is uniquely uh, qualified to help us. She was formerly an associate professor at the Gonzaga School of Law, where, among other things, she wrote a prescient article 10 years ago or more about what would happen if we had an epidemic like this and we needed hospital space. Uh, and she's now working as senior counsel at Common Spirit Health, which is a large nationwide uh, hospital system. So, Vicki, um, what's going on right now with these efforts to try and increase our hospital capacity in America? Well, thank you, Scott. It's interesting. Uh, different things are going on around the country. And as you mentioned, they range from the state or the city trying to uh, take uh, or at least negotiate a taking of private hospital property to uh, using public property, such as uh, Central Park, uh, ball fields, uh, other places like that to set up emergency hospitals to, uh, as, you, as you've mentioned, ordering hospitals or, or uh, requesting in some cases, some cases in order, ordering hospitals to stop doing elective procedures to make more room for COVID-19 patients. So there's a variety of action taking place. Some of them possessory takings that we're all familiar with, where the state comes in and says, I'm taking your property, to regulatory takings where the state is directing you, you as to what you can do with your private property. So explain what a taking is as we get to sure. the question of what's, what's the law here. Um, that sounds like a simple question, but it actually isn't. <laughs> uh, most of us probably think about a taking as a physical occupation of property. So for instance, uh, the use of eminent domain by a state where you maybe you have a, a home or a business or a building that is in the right of way that a state wants to use for in the road. So the state comes in and does a condemnation, to, so to speak, of your property and uh, uses it for public use, such as building a road. That's a very familiar use of, of taking power. But it can also be something less than that. Uh, it can be a temporary occupation of your property, or it can be a regulatory taking, which is a directive from the government uh, as to how you can or cannot use your property that has an effect on the economic value of the property and what your expectation was, your reasonable expectation was for what you can do with that property uh, in an economic sense. So I feel like I'm seeing a kind of paradox here, and it takes me back in history a long time ago to 1793 when um, we had a yellow fever epidemic here in Philadelphia, and the local government just seized a mansion on the outskirts mm-hmm. town and turned it into a hospital. And they didn't, as far as I know, ever talk about paying anybody mm-hmm. anything. Mm-hmm. It seems like still today, I know our governor in Pennsylvania has this broad power to commandeer mm-hmm. facilities, but it seems like
like behind that broad power, there's this kind of issue or fear or concern that they're going to have a big bill they have paid. Can you sort yes. of explain how that broad power and takings fit together? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm not surprised that uh, in 1793, there would have been no attempt to make a, uh, a compensation because I do not think that the takings clause, which is the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution, had been interpreted to extend to the states at that point in time. And now we know it does through the 14th Amendment. It's been incorporated to extend state. But as far as today, again, commandeering in a public health emergency like this, there's no question that the state or the city or the local government is use, is, is within its, its rights to use its power to protect the public health. So very often you'll see, if it's a true emergency, you'll see an act first and pay later kind of, of uh, situation where perhaps in Pennsylvania, for instance, the governor thinks and can just kind of go ahead and commandeer property without the due process ahead of time that one would normally expect to get compensated like you do when they want to build a road. So again, it's all tailored to the situation. This is an emergency situation. So the fact that they can commandeer first doesn't mean that later somebody couldn't come in and try to uh, assert a a right to compensation. So it seems like cities and states are just facing up to that and they are making rental arrangements or building tents Mm -hmm. and stuff. But you mentioned also the idea that possibly these bans on elective surgery, which we see Mm -hmm. all over the place and which affect, you know, surgery centers and medical practices as well as, you know, hospitals, Mm -hmm. that that might be something that to turn out to be a taking that states have to pay for. Well, yes. Uh, And I think, again, what we're seeing is the recognition of that by things like the the, the recently passed uh, trillion dollar uh, federal, uh, what's been called the bailout, it's actually being called the CARES Act, where there's a lot of money being distributed or about to be distributed by the federal government. There's been a lot of focus on the individual checks that people are going to get. But within that, there's $117 billion earmarked for hospitals. uh, And that's to compensate them for losses that they may incur due to their status of having to uh, stop elective surgeries and treat COVID patients. So there's clearly a recognition of need to compensate. So it turns out there's no such thing as a free emergency order. But are are we in the public the right people to be paying for all for this, you know, elimination of elective Mm -hmm. surgery and stuff? Well, that's a really good question, Scott. And I think that it is a public use. And therefore, I think the flip side of that is that and the whole point of the takings clause is that if you're taking property for public use, the public should bear the cost and not an individual property owner. So although it seems a little bit odd that we would have to pay for our own our own public use, we are in fact paying for it. We pay for it through tax money and the power of eminent domain or the compensation that comes from taking of property is paid for by the public. So individuals, property owners don't have to foot the bill for public use or public health in this in this uh, instance. So it sounds like the law is and, and the policy actions being taken are sort of protecting hospitals from the adverse economic consequences of this of this outbreak and the, and the sacrifices they're making. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it doing a good enough job? And are there you know maybe other winners that or losers that we're not aware that we're not thinking about when we think about this situation? Uh, Sure. Uh, I, I think we're not, we don't have enough information yet to know if they're do, if this is going to be sufficient or if they're doing a good job. Right now, there are no rules about how that money is going to be distributed. And that's been charged, uh, that's been tasked to the Department of Health and Human Services or Department of Health to uh, Department of Health and Human Services to determine what the rules will be as to who's going to get that money. So I think we're not sure yet about whether it's going to be enough or sufficient. Uh, and in fact, yes, there may be some sort of hidden winners and losers here. For instance, if 
we have state governments in many instances saying in the, here in Washington state, which is where I am, the governor has said that he doesn't want private insurers charging patients for COVID testing and in some cases COVID treatment until they're at least not until or de- delay the, the billings until we know how we're going to get this paid for. So if in fact the federal government winds up or state governments wind up paying some amount of money to hospitals to make up their shortfalls, that could be a hidden windfall for insurers, for private insurers who normally would be paying for the elective surgeries that are not taking place at these hospitals. So they've been collecting premiums from individuals to cover surgeries, et cetera. And right now they're not paying out anything uh, to pay for those things. So, you know, if some of those things are never rescheduled, the insurers are going to get get something out of that. So I think we also want to look at perhaps whether that, that is fair or whether we need to be make sure that insurers don't claim that the costs of COVID have caused them to incur losses and they have to raise premiums when they may in fact have gotten uh, some benefit out of not having to pay for other care that they would have otherwise had to pay for. Do we have any problems with the sort of, uh, like say, urban-rural divide or you know the fact that some of these orders are statewide but the situation varies from place to place within the state? Yes, um, that is a very big problem. Um, I, uh, many rural areas have not yet been impacted greatly by COVID-19. Uh, it is eventually most likely going to hit rural areas, but that, that that does not happen that quickly. Yet hospitals in rural parts of state that have been ordered not to perform elective procedures are being hit very hard. Uh, they do not have patients in bed, and therefore they are not getting any income. They're already very marginal in many cases. Rural hospitals, particularly critical access hospitals, which are hospitals with fewer than 25 beds, have been struggling around the country. They're very dependent on Medicare and Medicaid, which do not pay at the highest levels. And I know at least here in Washington, we have five hospitals that have been identified, rural hospitals that have been identified as close to closure because of the lack of cash flow that they've had because of their inability to perform procedures or have patients in bed. We have this, you know, consistent reports of hospitals struggling to get equipment, masks and ventilators and so on. And there's been this back and forth about the Defense Production Act and how much the government should be taking control from a national perspective of procurement and distribution. Um, Is your experience and what you're seeing in the hospitals around you now suggesting any, you know, advice on those lines? Our hospitals and the hospitals that I work with are are experiencing still shortages of equipment, uh, PPE, personal protective equipment. Um, Whether it's necessary to mobilize uh, private uh, manufacturers under the Defense Production Act to basically take them over, commandeer them, so to speak, and have them produce what we want, I, I, I can't really say. I think one of the problems, there may be more problems with distribution of the goods than actual production of the goods. And so, you know, pitting the states against each other to bid for the, for the for this equipment is not, I think, a great idea. So I would like to see more federal intervention in the distribution process and perhaps the purchase process and then the distribution. But whether we can do this without the Defense Production Act uh, being used in its full power or not is, is still hard to say. Well, so um, what should we in the law community and the press and the public be looking at over the next couple of weeks as issues are going to arise around mm-hmm. getting enough hospital capacity? Um, yeah, um, I, I think that what we're going to see, assuming things go as they seem to be going, is uh, 
uh, continued switching of facilities that are geared for other purposes to use for COVID. I think we're going to see more use of public property because you avoid the problems of commandeering private property if you use public space like a sports arena that's part of a public authority or uh, Central Park or, or other places where you can quickly erect a field hospital then using private property where you get into the kind of Hanneman situation where you wind up in a negotiation with a landlord. And I think you might start to see some concern from hospitals that are being hit hard and become sort of centers for COVID about their future and whether the fact that they were sort of the COVID-19 magnet center may affect them going forward as far as their reputation. Hospitals are very reputation conscious. And one of the concerns that I have and that I did have written about is the goodwill factor here. When we had the SARS epidemic some years ago and it hit Toronto, Canada very hard, the hospital there that became sort of the epicenter was Scarborough Hospital, suffered for years afterwards from sort of a stigma of having been the place where people with SARS were located. And when they wanted to go back to do elective procedures, you know, people didn't want to go there. And uh, I'm concerned that we may start to see that in some of the hospitals that are used as COVID-19 centers or that are hit the hardest. And there is no compensation, you know, that $117 billion is probably not going to compensate the hospitals for lost business down the line. So I think we're going to see some short-term effect over the next couple of weeks. The PPE issue, the issue of finding space in public locations versus private locations, and also the issue of where to put patients who are being released from the hospital but need to go into isolation that don't have good setups at home. That's another use of private property. Hotels, motels have been commandeered by our government here in Washington State to house some of those patients. And I think we'll start to see more of that. And in those situations, do they just, they, they're, they're commandeering them, but presumably they're agreeing in advance upon a rent. Yes. For, for yes. As of now, yeah. as far as I know, everything that has been done has been with an agreed rent. But I can see a situation where if the situation escalates and we need space quickly, where hot space is basically uh, taken for public use uh, and we kind of put the due process on the back end when we argue about, uh, about how much we're going to pay. I mean, at some point, the, the government is going to pay. The question is how much and when. So one of the questions we have here is that people are wondering about that stigma premium as part of the, re the legal calculation of rent. I mean, I know here in Philly, besides our Hahnemann Hospital fight we just had, we were the home of Legionnaire's disease yes. and it broke out in a hotel um, and that hotel did not resurface operating as a hotel again for something like 20 years because it mm -hmm. was people were so afraid even to go near it. So if you're the Marriott in Philly and they want to release and they want to use your hotel to release people, how much extra can you charge for the potential stigma um, of yes. having been the COVID hotel? Uh, that is a very good question and I don't think we have a very good answer. I do not think that that traditionally payment for lost reputation or goodwill has been a large uh, part of uh, just compensation. It all depends on what the quote-unquote reasonable business expectations were of the owner. So the owner would have to show that they were reasonably expecting to receive a certain amount of income, you know, based on stock investors, based on bond issuance uh, in the case of hospitals. And that's not easy to do. Looks like we have one more question we have time for, um, which is, if you could just explain again the difference between, you know, in relation to health commandeering between this sort of commandeering and taking versus eminent domain. The, the difference is really just one of timing. When you're dealing with traditional eminent domain, again, it's a matter of when you, you get involved with your due process. Eminent domain is usually not an emergent situation. There's planning involved. We want to build a road. We want to build a bridge. We need your
your property. We're going to negotiate in advance uh, the, the fair market value and offer to pay you that. And if you don't like it, uh, you can ultimately take me to court. And we're not going to build that road until we finish that process. But in the public health situation, we have to move fast. We may commandeer your property now and work out on the back end compensation. So that's the main difference. Well, thanks so much. We've, we've, we've come to the end of our time here. And I, I find this really interesting um, compared to prisons. You know, in the prison setting, we have the problem that we need to act right now because yes. um, this is exploding, but doesn't seem to be happening. In the, in, 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 in the case of the commandeering situation, we have all this broad power to act right away. But it turns out that because there's going to be a payment at some point, cities would just as soon and states would just as soon work out the deal and get an agreement and do it voluntarily um, rather than, than using their, their commandeering power. So sure. I guess we get to watch in the next few weeks how cities negotiate under pressure with landlords and hospitals and I guess city parks um, build new hospitals. And again, you can go to publichealthlawwatch.org to get all the materials from today's presentation um, and access to all our recordings. So thanks to the whole team at Public Health Law Watch and thanks again to our Public Health Law Research people, um, Prabhu Panksha, um, who communications advisor and all the faculty members and practitioners in the George Group um, who are preparing even now to present new issues to you. So tune in next time and until then, wash your hands. <laughs>